What is resettlement? Basically, I think it's kind of like winning the lottery. This is Refugee Resettlement 101, hosted by Fafo Institute for Labor and Social Research. Hello, everyone. We are here today with the second episode of Refugee Resettlement 101. This is Ayşe Bilgehan Aldar, and today we will discuss some subtitles as vulnerability, as I promised in the last episode, and also some other issues of how resettlement influenced the lives of refugees with my guest, Ingun Björkauk. Welcome to our studio, Ingun. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me as a guest today. Of course, my pleasure. <laughs> Ingun, uh, can you please introduce yourself for our listeners to get to know you? Please. As you said, my name is Ingen Björkeg, and I hold a PhD in Development Studies and work as a researcher at FAFO. I have been studying refugee populations since 2007, mainly focusing on the African context. And I've done a number of studies on vulnerable groups like refugees and victims of sexual violence. And during my time of working with refugees, I've observed a lot of different dynamics related to resettlement options. And over the years I have worked on this topic, the number of refugees worldwide has steadily increased. There's an ever-growing need to find viable solutions for the expanding populations that can no longer live in their home countries due to new conflicts or conflicts that have been lasting for many years. Today, the number of refugees is higher than we have ever witnessed before, and the solutions of finding good protection mechanisms for all these refugees are few. Yes, I agree with you 100% on that. Well, we, I think, just dived into the topic so fast, and um, this is why I think uh, this will be a great conversation with you and with your expertise. So, uh, if we're already you, me, and our listeners, then I am directly diving into the episode with a deep question. We mentioned the term vulnerability in the first episode, and you also mentioned that right now. But unfortunately, we didn't have enough time to discuss about it uh, a lot. And I know this is a wide topic to talk about. So I thought it would be better to cover this question with you today. To start with, may I ask what vulnerability is? Well, that's a big topic. Vulnerability can be defined a bit differently in different contexts. And in, when we talk about vulnerability and resettlement, there's no operational definition of vulnerability. However, a general definition of vulnerability, which is also the one they use in the Oxford Dictionary, refers to vulnerability as the quality or state of being exposed to the possibility of being attacked or harmed, either physically or emotionally. Personally, I think uh, definitions from the dictionaries helps a lot to understand a term. So thank you for that. And a new question arises here. I'm about to ask you one of the most controversial questions in the resettlement topic. And are you ready? I'm ready. I want to ask who is the most vulnerable? Well, in the context <laughs> of resettlement and refugee work, it is stated that most refugees who live without any foreseeable future prospects, they are, have limited means to secure a livelihood. And many of them face harsh conditions and political instability, are by definition vulnerable. This likely encompasses the majority of the refugee population in exile. 
As time progresses, their vulnerability and factors that make them vulnerable can even increase because they have not yet found a solution to their problems. And when individuals, refugees, face uncertainty of the future for more than five years without any durable solution in sight, it is called a protracted refugee situation. Furthermore, uh, within the refugee context, certain factors uh, define people as extremely vulnerable refugees. These are factors that include age, gender, sexual orientation, health conditions, and also um, expertise of sexual violence if they are stateless, and their limited resources to support themselves and their family. However, I need to note here that being vulnerable does not mean that you do not have the resilience or ability to cope with these vulnerabilities. But that's a perspective we need to leave for another podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, we cannot cover all of these. This is a big topic. So we know there are protection needs of refugees, and this carries an importance to prioritize the refugees. But the question is, how is it possible to prioritize the protection needs of a refugee? Big question, Aisha, but I will try. To prioritize the protection needs of refugees is crucial to ensure that they are safe, their well-being, and long-term resilience for these people. As Rangna pointed out in the previous podcast, this is mainly the state's responsibility, the state that receives the refugees. And this aid should also be coordinated with both national and international organizations. In this context, it is worth noting that refugees often find themselves in developing countries. They live amid a host population which is already grappling themselves to find their own livelihood. And Elsa, in the first uh, episode, she highlighted how this can become increasingly challenging when there's a large influx of refugees, as the case in Lebanon. And even if the refugees are initially welcomed while they flee from the wars, the hospitality can disappear as their displacement, as the refugees stay there over a long time. Over time, the refugees can be seen as competitors in the labor market And there can be jealousy of the humanitarian aid they see that the refugees get, but they don't have access to. Many of the refugees also live in poverty, and the help they receive from the humanitarian aid is not necessarily sufficient to make their own livelihood. They are therefore dependent on the local goodwill, access to income-generating activities, and a good relationship to the host population. So these are dynamics at place in exile. There are three ways a refugee can get out of this exile or out of being a refugee. One is by returning home, which is often not possible because there's still a conflict in their home country. They can have local integration, but very few countries allow refugees permanent residency or citizenship. And they mainly give them legal rights, which is connected to their protection status as refugee. And the last option, which we discuss in this podcast, is resettlement to a third country. As we have learned by now, this means that another country, different from the one you flee to, admit to protect them and provide them with legal and physical protection, including the possibility of gaining permanent residence and citizenship. However, 
resettlement places offered by countries is very, very limited. Yes, unfortunately. So we often hear about the importance of burden sharing. And could you please tell us briefly what burden sharing is? I will try to be brief. The word burden is described in the 1951 Refugee Convention and is referred to placing overly heavily burdens on host countries and therefore they require international communities to intervene if that happens. And resettlement can be used when refugees cannot return home to their countries or be protected effectively in the country they are in exile. And resettlement has traditionally been perceived as one way to share the burden with host countries. There has been some attempts to change this word burden into responsibility sharing, but um, there seems to mainly be an agreement that the burden sharing is the correct word. However, as we learn in this podcast, there are a number of reasons to question if resettlement takes away any burden from the hosting countries, given that it is less than 1% of the refugees that are actually offered resettlement. So, Ingen, we know that many refugees have no other opportunities of reaching faraway countries like USA or Canada other than being selected for resettlement. I want to ask from your experience... What do you think that this change for resettlement means for the life in a refugee camp? I mean, it gives a slim chance of escaping the poverty that many refugees live under. So only a few of them get this chance. So what do you think about that? That's a bit of a long question. That would <laughs> yeah, be true. a bit of a long answer. Okay, so are you ready? Yes, Pay attention. I am. Okay. Resettlement is a term many of us have heard, but very few know about the complexities and the competition surrounding this type of protection. Many of us have maybe met someone who has been resettled in our own community without knowing a bit of the drama uh, of not only being a refugee, but also being selected for resettlement. In the camp setting where they are refugees, this is perceived by many people as a competition for being the most vulnerable refugees that UNHCR will select. Let me illustrate this with an example of how vulnerability can be perceived among refugees. Refugees from Eastern Congo has increasingly been resettled since 2011. And this is a result of many years with ethnic conflicts and violence in this region. And the conflict has been known for the widespread and systematic use of sexual violence often referred to as rape as a weapon of war. In addition to the trauma among the women of being raped, uh, and also men who are raped in Eastern Congo, they are also um, in the risk of being rejected by their family because uh, the stigma and shame involved. The Congolese refugees have for a long time been a prioritized group for resettlement. And for many women being a victim of rape, as damaging as rape is, can paradoxically be perceived as access to resources, humanitarian aid, and even resettlement. Let me explain. To be a rape victim is not a requirement or a question any receiving country would ask. Nevertheless, among the, uh, the refugees, there is a perception that their story about extreme suffering to the UNHCR can put them higher up on the priority list for resettlement. 
A consequence is then that women come forward with their stories of assault with the hope of being shortlisted. However, to share such a sensitive story is a game they can lose. The women are well aware, and I say the women because it's mainly women, some men, are well aware of the potential backlash, namely the risk of rejection from their husband and communities. It is a heartbreaking dilemma because they risk stigma and family ties for the chance of a better future for themselves and their families. Are you still following me? Of course I am. Thank it's, you. It's really heartbreaking <laughs> to listen, but I am. Thank you. So from the perspective of the resettlement countries, they are well aware of this type of vulnerability in the Eastern Congo. And they know that this is a vulnerable population. And this is one of the reasons why they also resettle this group of refugees. However, the individual assessment of the refugees' hardship does not make them a priority in itself. Because receiving countries also select families and individuals based on a more complex assessment, such as family size and integration potential. Could you please uh, elaborate more on this? Like, do you say that it is not important to be vulnerable in order to select it for resettlement? Do I understand right? Um, well, yes, I'm happy to elaborate on that question. Thank you. And I will refer to a recent article by Natalie Welfen, where she points out a more complex issue, namely the concept of promising victimhood. Her research argues that it is not enough to be vulnerable in the world of refugee resettlement. And she points out a contrasting requirement, namely that refugees must, one, show that they are vulnerable at risk while they are in exile, yet, here comes another paradox, they also need to demonstrate that they can overcome their vulnerability once they have been resettled. Refugees must prove that they will not pose a risk to the country they go to. They need to illustrate their potential for achieving economic independence. And also they must show that they are fit to integrate into the new culture they resettle in. I will move forward. I will also say that in this context, you also need to note that there's a, a notion here in our community, in the receiving countries, that resettled refugees are viewed as the real refugees. You might hear in during the heated political debates mm -hmm. uh, where many politicians assert that the resettlement programs make sure that the countries select the most vulnerable refugee. But as we have learned so far in this podcast, selection is about much more than vulnerability. It is a matter of compatibility with the destination country and in addition for the refugees, It is also a matter of sheer luck. Access to resettlement is an exceptional resource that very few people make it to. And let us not forget countless refugees. Some people in the refugees facing even greater threats than the ones selected remain in camps, waiting for their chance. And their moment has not yet come not because they are less deserving or less vulnerable, but mainly because they had not made it to the shortlist of eligible candidates. Can I just move forward a little bit more? Of course, I'm all ears. <laughs> Thank you. So this brings me to the concluding thought for today. The possibility of resettlement stands as the greatest hope for many refugees. 
And this hope can be a coping strategy through their challenging times. The anticipation of a potential better future can help them come through hardship. Yet the backdrop of this is that the hope can be transformed into feeling of despair if years and years passes by and the expectation and hope is not yet met. Well, yeah, this made me remind that I have been into a conference and uh, there was a woman who met a Syrian refugee and asked, what do you think we as the Western countries should do? And he said that uh, maybe you should stop promising us that you can save us because you cannot. Like the, the main point is with the hope given by the Western countries to them comes a great responsibility along with it. So we should be aware of that responsibility if we are giving the hope. So, well, it was a very interesting conversation, as I imagined to be. I want to thank you again for attending to this episode. Do you want to say goodbye to our listeners? Or if you have any additional comments, I would love to hear that. Yes. Thank you so much. Well, as you say, this is really difficult questions and difficult answers to find. But just to bring the discussion to a bit lighter perspective at the end of this episode, uh, resettlement has also transformed lives of many people. And this is something you can look forward to hearing more about in the next episode. Great. Thank you. And also, uh, I want to say that here. Of course, we cannot help all of the refugees, but we can say we all are trying our best, maybe, because here, uh, recording to this podcast, we are doing our best. I think we are trying, at least. So, uh, well, thank you, uh, Ingen, again. And, uh, well, dear listeners, this was the end of our second episode, which we covered interesting subtitles, at least for me. I uh, hope you all enjoyed it. And... In the third episode next week, again, an interesting episode waits for you. We will have an interview with a surprise guest and uh, hear about his story as a resettled refugee to Norway. So I hope to see you next episode. Until then, stay safe, dear all.